Hello. <clears throat> How are we doing this morning? Yeah. Oh. These are some very interesting. 18 is very interesting. It, it's kind of amazing how it all lines up together, how Jesus puts everything together. In preparing this, it was uh, very challenging for me because I had to go back and think about things uh, as far as uh, before I got saved and also in the process uh, of God drawing me to himself. Uh, these things can be very difficult to do, especially when it involves a brother. And over the past few weeks, we've talked about how to deal with not only being um, a body of Christ that represents him and who Christ is, and his last three words, not only to the, the disciples, but to us also. And that's to listen to Jesus. And it's, it's, it's amazing how uh, we can take so many things out of context today as being a group of body of believers. So church discipline is something that's practiced, or it should be practiced, and we should have that line of authority of people who are set in the church to oversee those who may veer off. Now at work, we have a set of rules and regulations that are temporary, but Jesus' teachings are eternal. Right? The two can't be compared. So today we're going to learn more about church discipline. It was, like I said before, it was a challenge for me. Okay? And we'll be coming from Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 15 through 20. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will, do, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your teachings that are more relevant today than any time. Heavenly Father, your teachings are eternal. And these are the things your kingdom would be made of, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your instructions. Heavenly Father, I pray that, again, you remove me out of the way and let your word be taught today. And Heavenly Father, let hearts and minds be open to your word. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The right chemistry can make an ordinary group of people extraordinary. The wrong chemistry, of course, can ruin a group of people or individuals. 
And the power of chemistry in Jesus Christ for us, the body of believers, shouldn't be too difficult to observe. Right? We People should be able to see that we stand for Christ, not only by what we say, but more so by our actions. Not involving ourselves in gossip, which is easy to do. I've been guilty of it. Not involving yourselves in things that may concern other people. Okay? But today, what we're talking about is the body of believers. How we should interact with each other. And Christ said that the world would know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Sometimes we don't see that in the body of Christ. Sometimes we see a lot of bitterness toward each other. We see a lot of hostility toward each other. And how can we be a light to the world if we can't treat one another the way God intended us for us to treat each other? Amen? Amen? Everybody should be able to see it. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus is teaching a lesson in chemistry. His lesson is not too difficult to figure out, right? It's, it's very practical teaching on relationships. <laughs> if we follow his directions, we'll learn to get along, to sharpen one another, and to be different than any other group of people on the face of this planet. The beauty of his lesson is that, If you set it in the supernatural context of his kingdom, it's like setting a fine jewel on a gold ring. It's beautiful, it's inviting, and it's priceless. Amen. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. Okay. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A lot of times this may be taken out of context because we know that Jesus himself hung around tax collectors and Gentiles. And that's why a lot of times they accuse him of what? Being a friend of sinners. Right? So let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus' teaching here answers for us the question of what to do if a brother sins against you. What we must be careful about, however, is whether or not our particular conflict applies to what Jesus is teaching. In other words... Does my problem with this brother and or sister applies to what Jesus is saying here in the scripture? Far too many times we take personality differences and styles as being sin towards you. Right? So, there are three qualifiers that determine for us whether or not Jesus' teaching applies to the problem we may have with a brother or sister. The first qualifier is whether or not the person with whom you have a conflict is a brother. Right? What basis would we have if this person's standard to how he or she lives is not based off the word of God? 
So if the person you must confront does not claim the word of God as their standard, you have no basis or foundation on which to make your claim. Not saying that the Bible is not the final authority on the face of this planet. Not saying that. I'm saying if this person that you have the problem with does not hold his life to the standard of which Christ is teaching us in Scripture, there's no basis. Right? You might be able to appeal to their conscience, but you come with no real authority. A brother, however, has a standard to which you can call him or her to account. That's the first qualifier. The second is whether or not the brother has actually sinned. There is way too much confrontation going on within the body of Christ that is absolutely not based on sin. We whine and we complain and we grovel and gossip over things that have more to do with differences in personality and style than with sin. Amen? Here's a story about a man who on a number of occasions accused people in the church of not loving him because they weren't as eager to hug him as he was eager to hug everyone he saw. Right? I had a, a brother that I ride to work with, a good friend of mine, said he was in his office one day and a couple of gentlemen came in his office and he said, well, sister such and such is out here arguing with the other sister. And, and they were arguing over whose green beans were the best. <laughs> People, <laughs> I mean, of all the things to have a disagreement about, green beans? I, I was totally blown away with that one. So this man was accusing everyone of not loving him because they didn't hug people like he did. Look, people, some people just aren't comfortable with hugs. Some people just aren't, aren't, aren't handsy like that, right? So it's very important that we qualify our approach of others with the clear violation of God's standard and not our own. Far too many times we put our standard before God's standard and it's not going to work. And so therefore conflicts arise, problems arise, bickering arise within the body of Christ and then unbelievers look on and say what are you offering me you're doing nothing no different than what we're doing out here in the world I see it all the time and I'm sure you guys do too at work out in the out in the world period we see it we can see these things because we see through the lens of Christ or we should be seeing through the lens of Christ so we have to make sure that we're, it's a violation of God's standard and not our own. Now, quite frankly, the third qualifier may not exist. I'm saying this because your Bible says if your brother sins against you, some earlier mans- manuscripts do not have this qualifier. Some translations say just if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Right? Either one is still the word of God. It just depends on how it was translated. That goes by the manuscripts. Okay? So it says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. This is more accurate in the context of the entire scripture. Now, based off this, I have two questions. And we don't have to answer them out loud. Was David sinning against Nathan when Nathan confronted him of his murder of Uriah and his affair with Bathsheba? Number one. Number two, 
was Ananias and Sapphira sinning against Peter when Peter confronted them about dipping into the church treasury? No and no. David confessed in Psalms 51.4 against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. Okay? Peter told those offering robbers, they have not lied to men, but to who? But to God. See how we can easily confuse that? A brother has not sinned against you, but against God. Right? We're going to go on more into details on that. If your brother is having an affair, even if it's not with you, go and show him his fault. So Jesus gives a very clear and practical way of dealing with the brother who sins. Step one, let's look at verse 15. It's totally by scripture. And he's giving it to us step by step. Verse 15. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, the purpose here is to win your brother over. It's not to embarrass him. It's not to make yourself puffed up in front of everyone else. It's totally here. The motive behind what you're doing here should be to win your brother over. Amen? Perhaps the greatest challenge for us in this situation is the specific directions to make it a matter between the two of us. That's where the problem lies because far too often what happens between the time of the sin and the going to tell him his fault, we have conversations with others. Hmm. Yeah. That begin with you wouldn't believe what so-and-so did. It happens. Or if we want to spiritualize it, we, we'll ask, pray for me. I have to go and talk to so-and-so about whatever the matter may be. That's if we want to spiritualize it. Right? Hmm. Jesus intends, we would not, discuss, if, if, if we're doing what Jesus intends and for his purpose, We would not discuss with others the sins of our brothers. You see, greatness is not a competition, right? So we don't need to publicize each other's sins. We really only do that to build ourselves up above somebody else in our own eyes or the eyes of others. Knowing that that's not true, the point, there is no point in discussing or involving others. It would do nothing nothing to win your brother. In fact, most likely it would erode his confidence in you as a messenger and as a friend. Far too many times we have this these this gossip, and we have them, and every, everybody has them. They love the gossip. There's a guy at work. Every time we turn around, he's gossiping about something. And if you don't gossip with him, he gets upset at you. Is that something? Apparently this is serious business to Jesus, or he wouldn't be saying this, right? He said between you and him alone. There's a reason why he said that. And the reason is not to go and talk about it with everybody else. 
Step two, look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, the purpose here is not to establish the matter and make it a permanent record. The implied or intended purpose is still to win your brother over. Right? We take along two or three witnesses to establish the fact that what? Step one has been taken. Because if you notice what the scripture says, if you keep it in context, it says take two or three witnesses along with you. Not that they get involved and start talking to the brother too. I mean, I'm sure that can happen. But he's making it very clear of what he, how he wants it done. So we take the witnesses to show that step one has been taken, and if necessary, that step two did not work either. Your motive must still be entirely to restore your brother. Unless it is, don't go to step two. Until it is, don't go to step three. Do we get that? Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Stop. Verse 17 has two-part answer here. Okay? It says, tell it to the church. Or instructions, sorry. What is the purpose of this? The purpose is still to win your brother over. Okay? The church has established lines of authority who will take responsibility for correcting your brother. Once this step is done, your responsibility is finished and, listen, your heart is right. You have already forgiven your brother if you needed to do so. Very practical steps here, people. So very hard to follow. Hopefully, the offending brother will recognize the authority of the church and respect those who watch over him, making him more apt to listen and more receptive to being won over. If not, the overseers will proceed to step four. Step four is the end of verse 17. It says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, Back to what I said at first. Many people take this part of the text completely out of context. Or they try to assert that this means you would treat the offending brother with compassion. After all, Jesus showed great compassion for the Gentile and tax collectors. And again, this would be a poor interpretation for two reasons. First of all, it would be a little late in the process to begin treating a brother with compassion. Why? Because if steps one through three are not done with the motive of restoring a fallen brother done with compassion, then it would be pointless to begin at step four. Not saying that we can't, just saying. Compassion must be a common thread through all four steps. Restoring a brother. Common. Right? The second reason this is not referring to just treating the offending brother with compassion 
is that Jesus said to treat him or them as you would a Gentile and a tax collector. Some translations say pagan. Said in KJV, actually. Okay. A disadvantage of reading is that you can't discern voice inflections. Okay. But the action to treat him as you would a Gentile and a tax collector is pretty straight to the point. How did first century Jews treat Gentiles and tax collectors? We can go back to the scriptures and see how they were treated in society. Right? They didn't associate with them whatsoever. That's why when Jesus hung around with them, they accused him of what? Being a friend of sinners. They wouldn't imagine doing such a thing. Jesus was saying here, here's the one to disassociate with, right? But the purpose of excommunication is this. It's still to win them over. But between the time of the sin and all these steps that we're taking that Christ is letting us know, far too many times we like to involve others. We like to gossip. We like to destroy relationships. This has to be very serious, people, because Christ has given us step for step, according to Scripture, of how we must deal with the brother who has sinned against you. Amen? So it's still done to win him over. It is done by making the point that their refusal to listen is not acceptable as a brother. Matter of fact, let's establish this. Let's go to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We're, kind of, we're going to kind of go through different uh, books of the, of the Bible here to establish the fact of what Jesus is saying here in, in, verse, in chapter 18. So Luke chapter 17, and I like to not start at the, the intended verse, but I like to start one or two verses before in order for us to get a flow of what Jesus is actually saying. here. Okay, so let's start at verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves if your brother sins. Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must what? Forgive him. Again, it's establishing the fact that we're doing this out of compassion and love on every step that's taken. Okay? Let's go to Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. The intended verse is verse 15, but we're going to start at verse 12. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. 
Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a what? Brother. Right? Let's go to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Let's start at verse 16. James chapter 5, starting at verse 16. It says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. Verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See how important it is? And their scripture can go on and on and on about establishing our brother. Okay? Restoring relationships. Not gossip. Not destroying them. Okay? The church has been given authority to make that call. By who? Themselves? No. Jesus Christ. Right? The Son of God. And that authority is most effective if it is accepted by the rest of the church. Jesus has given clear instructions for dealing with the sin in the church community or within the body of Christ. Think, brothers and sisters. Do you feel as though you can cast such stones? Are you completely comfortable with people confronting you with your sin? This is something I had to come face to face with. You're talking about pride. I had it. I had 20 to 30 people under me when I was running a gang life that would do anything I said. That power felt good in the flesh. And then God broke me down on my knees in my room. This teaching that Jesus is giving here is something that's going to last for eternity. Think about that. To wrap your mind around this teaching, uh, all his teachings, from Genesis to Revelation, is something that's going to last for eternity. And it doesn't stop there. Because we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to learn for eternity. That's something I can't even wrap my mind around. What, does time go both ways there? You know? It, I mean, I, you know, it never ceased to end. That's how big our God is. Amen? Amen. 
The beauty of this lesson lies in its setting. Jesus is still responding to the disciples' question about greatness. Right? Who is the greatest in the kingdom, they asked. And Jesus replied, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And eventually Jesus tells them what to do if a brother sins against them. In so doing, he describes the power of humility to build a kingdom community. Follow me here. When he sets the jewel, we also see the power of a community. Think about the humility it takes to go through the steps of restoring a brother who has sinned. It takes humility for us to discern sin from the differences in style or personality. It takes humility not to talk about a brother's faults. It takes humility to go, sinful as we are, and show our brother his faults. With the purpose of restoring him, it takes humility to be approached and worn over. It takes humility to find two or three witnesses, respectable witnesses, that is, to approach your brother again and again. It takes humility for him, with these two or three witnesses, to be won over. It takes humility to turn it over to the church without judgment or bitterness. It takes humility to serve as overseers in the church matters. It takes humility to submit to the authority of the church, to listen even at this later stage, and finally be won over. All of this takes humility. And if it comes down to it, it takes humility to tell a brother they are no longer a brother. Maybe to realize perhaps they never were. It's not to break them down. To let him know how serious this is. His church discipline needs to be applied. This kind of humility does not exist in your workplace. It does not re- exist in any organization or club or any other kind of community. And, unfortunately, it doesn't exist in a lot of churches either. But when humility wins out, when people come together to restore one another and to be restored... If necessary, humility has the power to build a community like none other. It's a great chemistry, and Jesus is the chemist. It's all about building a community, restoring a brother. And a lot of times, that's difficult. I know a lot in my case, when Jason was dealing with me, I can just... I can just picture how difficult it was at times from but once the Lord pulled me because God used him to draw me to himself God did the drawing okay once he did it was book after book after book I wanted to learn more and more and more I couldn't get enough still can't and I would love to see us as a body of Christ be that same way with each other to do anything to help our brother. But instead, it's far too many times we see that we love to tear each other down. Hmm. 
So Jesus is the chemist. He's formulating the kind of community that makes a kingdom. Look at verse 18. Let's look at verse 18. He says here, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In the humble community of of childlike faith is the supernatural power of heaven to bind and loosen here on earth. Sins are forgiven. People are set free. The one who won't listen is placed outside that community, bound to their sin and stubbornness. Jesus went on again in verses 19 and 20. And he says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. People, there is power to move heaven if we can agree. Jesus is with those who humble themselves and come together. That's the power of community in Christ. There is a great power in a community of believers led by Christ and Christ alone. Who do not consider greatness something to be achieved. We don't become great by doing things our own way. We don't become great by exalting ourselves. We don't become great by condemning others. If we love each other like a bunch of kids on a journey to see our father, we'll see him And it's not a race, it's a journey we take together. Jesus is making it very clear, teaching here, practical. The steps are laid out right here in the verse. So it's not about exalting ourselves. It's about exalting Christ together. Right? Loosening and binding is just another way of saying opening and closing. We open the doors by preaching the gospel. We close them by church discipline. Okay? So in closing, I would just like to leave this with us of saying that on this journey that we're taking together, Christ should be the centerpiece Of everything. And he should be exalted. He says if we humble ourselves. We will be exalted. That's in Christ people. That's not in yourselves. Yes. And like I said. Greatness is not something that's achieved. That stuff. A lot of times we get stuff that we do at, at our jobs. Confused with salvation. We work to maybe gain a boss's attention or, or to look good to others at our job. And we, and we take that type of thinking over into Scripture and thinking that that applies here and it doesn't. I mean, to us that may sound kind of, you know, crazy, but it happens. We have people out there that actually do that. First of all, it takes the Holy Spirit to decipher these things of what Scripture is actually saying. And together we can be that body. We can be that group, that body that Christ has called each and every one of us to be. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who took upon himself to pay our debt that we could never pay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for every single breath that we breathe because it is your breath. It is you who should be exalted. It is you who should be shown to the world. Heavenly Father, is your love a grace that we cannot comprehend, as the song says. Heavenly Father, your love overcomes everything. And as we go out this week and from here on out, Lord, let us be an expression of who you are. Let people see Christ in us, individually and as a body. Heavenly Father, strengthen us. Show us how we must be. So many times we go our own way. So many times we want to venture into doing other things, Lord, but you, by your power and your power alone, keep us. And it's your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.